Hey friends, this is Pastor Elizabeth, and you're listening to the Faith Church Podcast. You're about to hear the sermon from the fourth week of Lent in our series called Good Enough. This sermon is about the familiar story we usually call the prodigal son, but I'm actually thinking that guy might be our role model today. I hope that while you're listening, you might hear something that draws you closer to the heart of God. Here we go. We didn't get a live recording of the sermon this week as it was preached during the worship service because of an unknown internet error. But here is a recording just for you. This story, usually called The Prodigal Son, is one of the most preached on passages in the entire Bible. If you've gone to church more than a few times, you've probably heard it on repeat. And even if you're newer to church or haven't been in a while, you've likely at least heard cultural references to the prodigal, or perhaps seen the famous Rembrandt painting inspired by the story. I have heard dozens of sermons on this text and preached several myself, and I confess that when I read this story, I usually feel pretty critical of the younger son, pretty judgmental pretty arrogant in any comparison of myself to him, sure that I have been a much better child and sibling, that I would never take my inheritance and squander it on dissolute living, only to come crawling back broke a little while later. In general, this story makes me feel pretty good about myself. And perhaps that's reasonable. Maybe that is what Jesus wants us to think when we hear this story. After all, he's told this parable and its predecessors about the lost sheep and the lost coin in response to a critique that he opens his arms to sinners and eats with them, that he welcomes outcasts. So perhaps we are intended to hear about this younger son and identify him as an outcast, someone unlike us so that we can see the power of him being brought close again, the way Jesus welcomes all who have gone far off, as well as those who are near. I was fascinated, though, that as I studied this story this week, I found myself feeling very protective of the younger son. I noticed that at the beginning of the story, the father divides his estate without so much as a conversation. There's no mom mentioned who might stop these shenanigans and talk sense into everyone. At no time does the father say, you know, son, I'm not sure if you're ready to be out on your own. Let me teach you how to make a budget. Many interpreters have said that asking for your inheritance early is the same as wishing your father dead, but there's not much basis for that here. And if this request was a sinful one, it would have been the father's duty to correct his son not to give in to him. So if the younger son is to blame in this story, so is the father. It's definitely not all the kid's fault. But before anything else has happened, the text says that the younger son has wasted his wealth through extravagant living. It's the same word that made me upset in last week's reading when the landowner suggested that the fig tree was wasting the soil it was in simply because it had not yet borne fruit. 
That word wasted is quite a judgment before we've heard anything else. I mean, at what point does the son get to decide what he does with his own money? And who's to say when it's wasted? Take that together with the fact that we call this story the prodigal son, which skews our understanding from the very beginning. The word prodigal has sometimes come to mean generous in our day, but its original meaning was wasteful and focused on vice rather than virtue. So before the younger son has done anything, we've already labeled him as a scoundrel, a ne'er-do-well, a fool. We haven't even given him a chance. And the story doesn't tell us exactly how the younger son spends his money, though the older brother will make some accusations later. But it does say he scatters his wealth in this faraway place where he has no family, no network, no synagogue where he can go for help. And then there's a famine in the land, and he's hungry, desperate. But he accepts the consequences of his actions of his having spent all of his money, and he hires himself out to a local who has him feed the pigs. Here, still, no one gives him anything. There's no generosity in this faraway place, not for this kid who is completely alone, and even though he longs to eat his fill from what the pigs eat, he's still honest in his work. He doesn't steal their leftovers. He doesn't take a little off the side, even with his stomach grumbling. And somewhere along the way, the young man comes to his senses. Maybe he repents and is forgiven and is transformed. Maybe he just remembers who he is, that he is a beloved son, the son of a generous father, a father who has always loved him, who treats even the hired hands better than he's living right now. Or maybe the repentance, the forgiveness, the transformation, and the remembering of identity go hand in hand. Either way, the son's eyes are opened, and he prepares to go home, practicing a speech that immediately reminds his father of their relationship too, the first word being father, reminding him that though he has been far off, he is still the beloved son. This reminds me of a book I read recently in which there was a very close relationship between a father and his oldest daughter. They shared many loves, interests, goals. They even kind of had their own language. And even when she was a teenager, the daughter called her father Daddy. She didn't even notice it, but he noticed every time. Then, as often happens in relationships, the father made a mistake And when the daughter found out about it, a rift opened up between them that felt like it might never be mended. From that time on, when she spoke to her father, which was rare, the daughter called him Dad, never Daddy. It was a reminder that something was broken, that there was a divide between them, that their relationship needed to be healed. And then eventually came a day when it was mended. 
When forgiveness was asked and grace was offered, and without even realizing it, the daughter went back to calling her father daddy. A reminder of who he was in her life, of who she was in his. The younger son plans to go home and remind his father of their relationship, which he believes can be repaired. And why not? Perhaps we are surprised that the father receives his younger son with such compassion and generosity, but we have no reason to be. The father has shown nothing but generosity so far in the story. He's not shaming. He's not harsh. Of course he loves his son and will be delighted to see him again, even if he has wasted his entire inheritance. And what's the worst that can happen? The father makes his son work for a living in the household where he'll have plenty to eat and a family to love him. The son has nothing to lose here. The son knows his father, and he knows all will be well. He just has to go home. So that's what he does. He goes home, rehearsing his speech the whole way. And while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and is moved with compassion. He runs to him, hugs and kisses him. He lets his son apologize lets him get through his well-rehearsed speech, then tells the servants to bring the robe and ring and sandals that restore the son to his place in the household, to bring his old uniform, if you will, and to kill the fattened calf for a party, to celebrate that this lost one has been found. Now, unfortunately, in all the hubbub, the father has forgotten his older son, He hasn't sent a message to the fields that his brother has returned. He hasn't sent him an invitation to the party. The older son finds out what's going on only when he hears the music and dancing that are a bit unusual coming from his house on a weekday. And he's angry. Perhaps because he's been overlooked. Or perhaps because he's technically paying for this party. Since the father split the estate between the two sons and the younger son spent his half. And we might identify with the older son, thinking celebrating this prodigal after so many bad decisions won't teach him anything. It's bad parenting. You're simply encouraging that wasteful behavior to continue by rewarding it. And what about all of us who have been so good all this time? Where is our party? And we might be right in feeling indignant about this. We might understand the older son's refusal to go in to his brother's party to join in the celebration because none of this seems fair. We might want the younger son to have to earn that love, to work for that celebration, not to receive it simply because he showed up after a long time away. But the more I think about this story this week, and in this season in which we're contemplating what it means to be good enough, in a culture that tells us there is no such thing, that we must always strive to be better and better, that we need to aim for perfection in all things, I wonder if the younger son isn't actually a great role model for us. Because I don't know about you, but when I make mistakes even much smaller ones than squandering my entire inheritance. I tend to beat myself up about it. 
I often assume that mistakes are just signs of my weak character, my lack of preparation, my inability to get things right. When those mistakes cause rifts in relationships, I worry that they can never be mended. I judge those mistakes, judge myself pretty harshly. And my guess is that some of you do the same. And in doing so, we join right in with the older brother in this story. The one who seems to believe that love, celebration, and joy have to be earned. They can't just be received. But the younger brother, even when he's made huge mistakes, recognizes what he's done, remembers who he is, who his father is, how beloved he is. He goes home, he apologizes, and he receives the grace offered to him and lets the rest go. He is fully able to enjoy the party, to eat of the fattened calf, and to dance to the music with those new sandals on his feet, not because he doesn't care about what's happened, but because he knows grace can't be earned, it can only be received. It's always a gift. When he has the opportunity to restore relationship with his family, he takes it. He doesn't hide in shame, saying, oh, they'll never trust me again. He's learned his lesson, made his apologies, received forgiveness, and moved on. And despite his mistakes, he's able to celebrate being reunited with his family. And where's his big brother? He's outside, refusing to come in refusing to celebrate what this brother has not earned, believing he should try harder, he should be better, to get this relationship restored. But where is the generous and compassionate father? He's outside too, not begging the older son, as the CEB says, but the Greek indicates comforting him. Because even though the older son hasn't yet decided to receive the father's grace, it's available to him. He's not alone. And what about us? Where are we? Have we learned that mistakes happen? that we're all broken, that none of us is perfect, that we're called to offer grace to one another even when we are so offended by those closest to us, and that we're called to receive grace when we're the ones who have made the mistakes, to remember who we are and whose we are and come home, trusting that we'll be met with love. Or are we still trying to earn grace, and making sure everyone else does the same. Have we yet joined the party? Or are we still outside, resolute in our indignation or our shame? And what would it look like for us to go in, 
to celebrate when one who has been lost is found, when one who has been wandering comes home, whether we are the traveler or the one who's been toiling away all along. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Faith Church Podcast. If what you heard was meaningful to you, please share this podcast with a friend. If you have any questions, or if we can support you on your spiritual journey in some way, don't hesitate to reach out through our website at www.faithunited.org. Tune in next week as we continue our series with a look at vulnerability and the fragility of life and the story of when Mary anointed Jesus with costly perfume and his disciples said she should have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. Until then, take care.